the recovery radio show. It's probably all butterflies and bullshit. Welcome to episode one of the Recovery Radio Show. My name's Ken, and uh, let's see where the hell this is going to go. Uh, th- this, like I said, is the very first episode. I'm joined by my very good friend, Gordy. Say hi, Gordy. Hey, everybody. And uh, I guess today we're just going to chat with Gordy about you know his story, what got him to where he is today, and his journey on recovery, or in recovery. Uh, I, I know Gordy pretty well. Uh, we've known each other for a little bit now, and he is one of the most serene people with ducks and a beard that I have ever met uh, in my life. And he's got a big old smile on right now. So what's going on, Gordy? Tell us about the ducks and how everything's going at home. I mean, what's just going on in, in life? Oh, everything's pretty good right now. The ducks, and he forgot the geese, including the lead goose, Gertie, Gertie the goose. Gertie the goose, right. Um, and then there's the corgi, the mastiff, the cat named Meowsers, and the child. And who knows what other critters are running around the yard these days. Critters are important for recovery. Critters are important. Anything you do to, to add to your hobbies and, and recovery, especially if it involves cultivating life, is a big, uh, a big bonus. Because when you're taking care of something else and you're cultivating life... It breeds a stronger sense of accomplishment. Absolutely. Hell yeah. I never really thought of it that way. Thank you, Gordy. But uh, before we get too deep into the ducks, because once I start talking about the ducks and Gertie the Goose and everything else, I kind of get lost. So uh, I guess if we could, let's get into uh, who you are, right? And, And what got you to today? Obviously, uh, we are both sitting here as people that have battled and right now have a leg up on addiction, right? But we can't uh, get complacent, right? Because that's something that never goes away. It's something that is never healed. It's something that uh, we have to work on every single day. But uh, I guess if I could, let's just start with your story. Who the heck are you, Gordy? What got you here? Sure. Um, and you're right. Never get complacent. Name's Gordy. Born and raised in Shelton, Connecticut. I'll talk a little bit about, you know, coming up, how I progressed into my older years uh, and, and kind of what happened, what path I went down into where I am today. Uh, I'll try to keep it to only the stuff that's significant to not only what got me into the alcoholism, but why it's pertinent that those things aren't forgotten when addressing recovery. And, and trying to get better. I grew up in a upper middle class, middle class, whatever you wanted to call it at the time in the 80s. Gen X, last graduating class of the millennia in 1999. Didn't have really anything to want. Both my parents worked really hard to provide materialistic things and vacations, you know. But my parents coming from a, a time frame where they grew up wanting, giving things they didn't have was like an extremely big priority. So everything became like, a, back then, I guess it was it was people compared what they had to what other people had or what they did to what other people did. Right. They were also the youngest. My dad was like sixth out of seven. My mom was the youngest. So there was a lot of comparing. Unfortunately, the way it, it turned out for, for us growing up was 
that's how they kind of raised us when it came to accomplishing things. So we were always compared to everybody else. You know, why aren't you as good as was, was a constant question. Negative reinforcement was very normal in upbringing back then. Even if you got like a B, you're, you're, you're terrible, you're horrible. You're never going to make it in life. You know, uh, you're only successful if you make six figures. So these things were the things that were like put into uh, a child's mind, even at a young age. And, and what were, as you start to study recovery, it, that can have an effect, a lasting effect. And I'll, I'll kind of get into where that turns into uh, performance anxiety. You know, obviously, Ken, that I'm not talking about the bedroom. Yeah, that that's for a different podcast, uh, Gordy. But quickly, while, while we have the, the breaker, I just want to say I totally identify with a lot uh, of what you're talking about, right? And this is one of the most important things that I want to get across with this podcast is that no one out there is alone, right? There's always someone else that has been through what you've been through. There's always someone else that has seen what you've seen and anyone can raise themselves up out of any situation, right? Everyone always says, oh, every bottom has a trap door. I've never seen a coffin with a trap door. And that's what we're trying to keep people out of here, right? But like, especially with, I remember when I was a kid and me and my father have a great relationship right now, but I remember standing next to his desk, just being told how stupid I was, right? Forgetting a B or a C. I was a pleasure to have in class. I did everything, but I wouldn't do homework. That was my one thing. I'd sit there and just get heckled all night, just standing there getting beat up. But again, uh, sorry for the segue. I just wanted to put out there that that's kind of the point of this, right? That that everyone uh, out there can identify usually in one way or another uh, with everybody, right? We all have a lot in common and we're all fighting uh, to reach the same finish line, the same goal, and we can't get there. But anyway, back to the Gordy, the beard of wonder. After you, my friend. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, you know, it, before I continue real quick, just uh, to comment on your coffins don't have trap doors. Did you know that the little bells, if you ever go to an old cemetery and there's still a little bell, it's because a rope was attached down to the coffin just in case you got buried alive. Yep. I want one of those and I'm actually Yeah, maybe we should go back maybe we should go back to that, right? I think so. I just want to get a little machine in there with my dead body that every ten or fifteen days or so rings the bell. You know, for the next like five or ten years. I see. That's just a dis- that's sadistic. Well, th- th- listen. I need to have fun. It's funny. Oh, I'm not. Ki- that's funny. I love it. Fun but... in recovery is very, very important. Fun in recovery is very, very important. <laughs> um, so I ended up graduating, and going to the United States Merchant Marine Academy, which is one of the five federal academies. Had yet to touch any alcohol, any drugs, anything like that. I didn't drink. I went to plenty of parties with uh, marijuana basement parties. You know, you see, you see the old wood panel walls in the basement. Yep. That was a standard 80s thing. And the kids would all hang out down there. And uh, it was, you know, plenty of drinking, plenty of uh, pot smoking. Dave Matthews was big at the time. Everything was normal. I, I was I was trusted on that on that aspect to go out and be around it, and I just I, I had no no interest at the time. Uh, I got to college. I still didn't drink my entire freshman year. I mean, it, it, it did help that I was at a military academy, and it's called your plebe year, so you're not even allowed to sneeze without permission. But I became a drill instructor for the academy, and then after we finished uh, drill instructor boot camp. You know, we went out to a pub that allowed military IDs. Uh, if you're old enough to die for your country, you're old enough to have a beer. And they were like, hey, I have a beer to celebrate, you know, becoming drone instructors. And I was like, nah, like, why not? I said, it tastes horrible. Like, yuck. And so they handed me Black House. And I was like, oh, this stuff's delicious. And I proceeded to drink seven, seven shots, I think, if my memory serves me correctly. That'll do inside it. Inside like 30 minutes because I thought that was just the thing to do. And it didn't do anything very much to me. I, I always had a pretty high tolerance right from the beginning, which when you're young, you're like, oh, this is awesome because you see the movies where it's, 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 you're 
the tough person because you can handle more. Yeah, you can handle more. Maybe you're tolerating it, but it's still causing damage and maybe more damage. So anyway, that went on. I went out to sea as part of college. Um, somebody there, I guess, maybe didn't like me that much. The first, you know, some people, their first ship, they got to go to Egypt and see the pyramids. Some got to go uh, to Italy, Greece, see things like that, or maybe Japan and see Tokyo. I got sent to uh, third world Africa. Jesus. Um, I, listen, and I feel you, buddy, because my first, I had buddies that went to Japan. I was active duty Air Force. I got sent to New Jersey. You know, it's, yeah. it's I don't know what happens, <laughs> but I, I come from New York. I had to go to Jersey. So I didn't make it very far. I wanted to fly around the world. But anyway, continue, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so they sent me to uh, Congo, Angola. Kenya was nice, stuff like that. And I was one of f uh, four ships I was on. I did get to go to some other places. Uh, I watched a couple of my buddies get taken by the Congo police because uh, they wanted money. It was more of a hostage situation with Jesus. bribes involved than it was anything realistic. I uh, saw a lot of violence. So definitely saw a lot of violence over there. I got held up. Um, saw people get shot, uh, dead bodies. And it was... It was, it was very eye-opening for a teenager, you know. Um, I did graduate at 17, uh, a little bit early. Um, I didn't turn. It's funny when you can't even get into a, a dance club. Right. Because uh, you're not 18 yet. <laughs> so, but, um, you know, when we hit port, it was just normal. Uh, you're a sailor, you hit port, you drink. And so, you know, we would go out and we would drink. And um, that happened port to port, but out at, out at sea, it was dry. You know, we didn't drink out at sea. Met tons of people, had great experiences, life moves on. Uh, lost my flight contract. I did pass the, the pilot test, um, the Air Force AFOQ, whatever's. I forget the acronym. I passed those when I was a freshman. Uh, I wanted to, I joined the military to fly. The reason I chose the Merchant Marine Academy was because they had high flight placement. I totally overlooked what I had to study while I was there. Well, right. I, I had no interest in shipping, and here I was spending four, year, four years studying shipping. That didn't play out very well. So, um, yeah, hindsight, right? Uh, anyway, irrelevant, but just part of it. Um, moved on. Got myself kicked out because I thought I was a 20-year-old lawyer who could outsmart the Academy and Congress as far as the contract was concerned. Didn't turn in my C projects and thought I'd get withdrawals and incompletes. Instead, I, the dean was like, yeah, nice try, Fs. Uh, I couldn't get into another college, so I, all I knew was the, the military, and I uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps. I enlisted at 23, which is five years older than 18, and a whole lifetime already of experience. Um, <clears throat> I can rent a car. I can get a hotel. I can, you know, all these things I could do right out of boot camp at the, and, and I was a machine gunner in Huey's. So crew chiefs go through like 18 months of training at five different bases across the United States for those 18 months, man, <clears throat> I was already kind of living it up. You know, um, I could play the military game super well. Cause I was a drill instructor at the Academy. I'd hit the bar maybe on the weekends, but nothing crazy during the week ever. Uh, got deployed, went to Iraq, did some angel flights, took a guy out to go home to his parents who stepped on an IED, so you can imagine what that looked like. Worked with EOD a bunch, did uh, some, did one thing with the SEALs, did a uh, few support missions with uh, what at the time was called Army ODA, for people who don't know that. It's essentially like the Delta guys, uh, the big beards and the, and the jeans while in country and the backwards baseball caps and whatnot. Um, great, great group of guys. Um, but, you know, I came home and it was weird because – when the more stressful a situation got, the more the more calm I was, which was cool, and I really loved what I did, uh, the flying aspect. But I got home and I drank a lot. I mean, a lot more than I ever really drank before. 
And I experienced like transference. One of the guys I picked up, he was 19. Like I said, I was already 25 at the time. And all I saw is my little brother. You know, I have a brother that age. So it really ripped me apart mentally because like I'm sitting there trying to help this guy and I'm like having this weird emotional transfer where I'm picturing my brother is down at my knees, you know? So I, <clears throat> I had one night specifically where that actually just came haunting in so realistically. I, I just was drinking to forget it and I ended up actually falling down a hill. <laughs> But uh, hopefully a small hill. No, it was California. It's a pretty big hill, but I was okay. You know, when you're when you're drinking, you're pretty loose. Right, yeah. So, but then you know, it was eight. We were home what a year. I think we were home a year. Deployed again. Uh, the drinking subsided, not a lot, but some enough. So I ran an Ironman uh, triathlon. Um, I was very into my running and my exercise. Uh, <clears throat> I deployed the second time. There wasn't really much to do that deployment. We were getting ready to pull out. So we just worked out and took up martial arts, uh, came home from that. I was passed the state trooper exam for Connecticut, polys and all that other stuff. I got hired by them only to come home. They were, the only thing I had left was to give them my DD-214, my discharge paperwork. I came home. I called them up. I said, hey, I'm home. I turned down my reenlistment bonus. They were like, oh, your whole class got dropped. Wonderful. I never got notified while I was because I was in Iraq. And um, I said, well, when is it, uh, can my file carry over? They were like, we don't even know when the next class is. We don't know when our budget's getting approved. So it's not their fault. It's just politics. But now I'm stuck. Uh, luckily, I had a very good friend um, who got me into Sikorsky Aircraft. I worked at Sikorsky for uh, almost five years. Um, had a bunch of people under me, got aircraft out. Uh, first, I started off in operations, moved into uh, what's called programs planning and control, did a lot of cost and schedule stuff. Finished my bachelor's that I, I finally decided I needed. Well, I started in the Marine Corps. I finished in the... Uh, at Sikorsky, continued from there, tried to do all the right things. And this is kind of where that performance anxiety comes in. I thought I was checking off all those boxes we were told that had to be checked off, these invisible boxes when we were young, remember? Like, okay, here I am, a combat vet. I got a bachelor's of science in operations and logistics. I got a good job at a Fortune 500 company. I put in easily 10 to 12 hours a day to work. Uh, I'm taking extra courses and groups, and I'm not moving up. Um, and I couldn't figure out why. And then there was a huge company layoff with 1,200 people. I've always been pretty honest. And one thing I don't ever do is sacrifice my ethics and morals. And there was a, there was a director there who was trying to do something very unethical. And I stood up to him. Um, and he was notorious for being a bully. And my immediate manager, after I did it, I turned him into the VPHR and I won. But the, uh, my immediate manager calls me into his office and says, look, I love you. You do a great job. When the next round of layoffs comes around, you're gone. You need to find another department to be in. And I don't have any proof, but my uncle, who'd been working there for like 28 years, he was, in the, he was under the same director, just in a different section. He got laid off too. So I don't need that. I mean, he could have been that spiteful. That's how bad this guy was. Uh, I hope not. But who knows, you know, we, you and I have run into people like that. So the drinking started to increase. When I got out, I didn't talk about being in the military. I never talked about being in the Marine Corps. I never talked about being in the military. This is what I recognized. I, I, I didn't recognize until years later I was suffering some version of PTSD. And the more I study it, the more I realize uh, there's all sorts of different versions of it. A big study that's coming out is the being a part of a, a, a phenomenally tight and close tribe and community in the military and coming home to neighborhoods are not close anymore. They're not like back in the 60s where 
your whole neighborhood took care of each other like family. Block parties, watch my kid, I got to run to the store. There's a lot of veterans who don't see combat, but they do have life in a cohesive unit. And because they have such a tight and cohesive unit, and then you get out and everybody moves all over the country. Even if you do have a spouse, for instance, and and children and what have you, you're, you still lose what's considered, you know, part of your personal tribe. People that you can sit around and just not feel judged and feel very comfortable Absolutely. with. Absolutely. And, and that actually takes a really big toll on, on, the, on mental health. I went through that. I had the pilot I flew with, hundreds of combat flight hours. He, uh, he died in Afghanistan. The two helicopters collided when they got shot out with a surface-to-air missile. You know, you go through the, uh, well, I should have been in that helicopter. Maybe I would have made a call that would have ended different. And that's, it's an irrational thought, but you can't help but come up with it. I was mad at myself. I called, uh, now I'm drinking Old Granddad 136 because I couldn't get the buzz fast enough. I couldn't get the, the negative emotions out of my head quick enough. Uh, when I would get, It would still only be after work. I never drank at work. Still is performing the, uh, the so to speak, functioning uh, heavy drinker, I guess, would be if you're really going to get into semantics of it. I called my best friend and I said, I, 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 I want to go back to combat and I want to die in combat. I wasn't suicidal. I had no intention of hurting myself. Uh, that was that was never even an option or a thought. It was just, but I, I for some reason, I saw this, this glory, this, this, I think I was I was missing a sense of purpose in life. And because I was missing purpose and, and, and value and like real value, not monetary value, I just I thought dying in battle would give me value and purpose. I don't know. That's kind of, you know, a, a self-analysis of it from a lot of the reading I've done. It was definitely probably some version of PTSD. I got laid off there. You know, this was after the 2008 recession. The economy was very bumpy. I went through a few jobs, got laid off, never from performance. Uh, things were downsizing like crazy. I actually became a Connecticut judicial marshal and literally 10 days before he graduated, the director of the of all training for the entire state came in and said, by the way, our budget just got cut. You and the last two years of marshals are all getting You and off. budgets have a great relationship. Um, I'm starting oh, to learn. We're, we're best. We are best friends. Tell. You know, it's, it's, it's awesome. But now I want you to take this and couple it with, you're never going to be successful from when you're a child. It's built in in that check, those check boxes, even though they were there, I'm still failing. Or at least in my mind, I was failing. I hit six figures for a couple of years. So what? You know, I tell a lot of people now, what's my claim to fame? I was living, first of all, I'm over six figures. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Second, what's, what can I say about myself? So I never drank out of a plastic bottle. It was always glass and some form of, of what was considered nicer. So what? Are you kidding? I ended up trying my hand in finance. I ended up doing pretty good there. Started in Boston, got got a pretty good job down in New York. All this time, I'm drinking more and more regularly. And I wasn't even recognizing it because it was always at the end of the day. The reason was in my mind, it was always just to relax and to get some sleep. And I'm still performing at work, such forth and so on. I developed some strange form of anxiety where I would feel like I was going to pass out and fall down. I, I would use vertigo as an example to describe how it felt. I was drinking to try to combat that. And then I saw a therapist. And when I saw the therapist, the first therapist I saw was a quack. She was, she just immediately from the very first minute I sat down with her was throwing Xanax at me like it was oh, candy. God. Yeah. And this is why it's super important just, just to throw it out there, right? Talk therapy, in my opinion, I didn't think this for a long time, is super, super important, right, when it comes to recovery. But you have to find the right 
doctor, right? Just like you have to find the right meeting or the right fellowship or the right recovery program, not everything works for everyone, right? You have to find what works for you. And if you find a shitty doctor, find a good one, right? It's You don't have to stick with the first one. So, sorry, I just wanted to throw that out there. No, and, and, and you know what? That's It's really good advice that we look at now, you know, you and I, and it's like, it almost seems kind of obvious. This was my first therapist. Right. And same with me. When I had a therapist that was a quack, I just said, I'm never going back. Yeah, immediately. I, but she seemed very trusting. I was like, oh, yeah. And then she was like, well, maybe you need more than Xanax and such forth. I didn't figure it out till I took, she gave me the, the lowest dose of a certain prescription. I don't even remember what it was. And I'm not kidding. This pill was the size of like uh, one of them old little ball pinheads. Right. I was still even nervous about it. I cut it in half and I, I couldn't move. Like my heart rate went through the roof. I, I, was, I couldn't even move to grab my phone. I was getting ready to scream for my wife if I could to have her call 911. I'm not, I was terrified. It, wore, it ended up wearing off finally after hours. And I called my best friend again who's, who happens to be a doctor. And I, and I said, hey, have you ever heard of this? And he says, don't you dare ever take that again. That's what they give like severe mental health, like the kind that have to be put in a padded room and medically put right. in a Sounds coma. like Thorazine or something. He's like, it makes, he goes, it can, the side effects are potential chemical castration if you're on it for too long. Uh, it, it, it numbs you. It just, you end up drooling on yourself. He's like, do not touch that ever again. Well, thank goodness you reached out for help, right? And asked about it. Oh, and right there, that's when I woke up and I was like, wow, maybe I shouldn't go see this person. But um, so moving on from her, I ended up actually quitting benzos on my own. It was a horrible two weeks. Do not do that. Get medical assistance. I didn't know. I know now, but I didn't know at the time it could kill you. It is actually deadly to quit benzos cold turkey. Uh, and I did. And I, I went to go get the mail one day and I, I collapsed on my way to the front door. It is It is not a joke. Definitely anybody out there, if you're on benzos, get make sure you get medical help if you're going to Absolutely. Stop. Alcohol as well can kill you. Alcohol as well. And the irony is, uh, or not the irony, the coincidence is, is my best friend also explained this to me. He says benzos and alcohol, they affect the same inhibitors and receptors and serotonin feeling in your brain. And that's why they're similar in the way that they make you feel when you're taking them. Um, and that's, and a lot of people self-medicate with alcohol, but it's not a healthy thing to do. And both of them, because of how it affects the effect it has in your brain and what happens when you come off of them, you need to do it with medical assistance. It is not something to joke about. You will, you could potentially have seizures, heart failure, organ failure. It's, there's just a lot that can go along with it. So please, 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 if you're going to anybody that hears this, if you're going to come off alcohol or benzos, absolutely, definitely make sure you do it with medical 100% agreed. One and we have a disclaimer on the show, right? That this is not uh medical advice anything here, right? This is this is for entertainment purposes only, all that good stuff, but this is advice. This is medical advice. Please, benzos, alcohol, go get the professional help that you deserve because you're worth it, you know? Even if you don't think you are, that's the drugs and the alcohol lying to you, right? You are worth it. Exactly. Perfect. Um, I come off of that, but now what am I going to do? I start drinking more uh -huh. because now I'm fighting the anxiety that I didn't know how to deal with without benzos. So what do I do? I supplement the benzos with quantity alcohol and then COVID hits and I'm isolated. I'm, at, I'm working from home. People were joking about having cocktails at lunch. So suddenly that became a, a part of my day. I mean, no one's around, right? Why not? You could still do your job. All I was doing was moving numbers. I ended up 
needing to wait. This is, you know, it, it, talking about a lot for some people. Uh, all of us have a very similar, um, very similar ending before re rehab, but a different way to get there. But usually I hear this a lot. It's kind of like you're slowly walking down this shallow hill and then you get to the end and you fall off a cliff uh, right before you go in. If you are lucky enough, and I, I do mean lucky enough uh, and brave enough, it is a very brave thing to do. It is a very, very brave thing to do to go to rehab. I ended up knowing that I needed a drink at 530 in the morning because if I didn't, then by 630, I'd be throwing up bile in the shower or off the back porch thinking nobody would hear me. I love the lies that looking back that my addiction used to tell me. I used to think that nobody had any idea what I was doing. And it's just insane. Like, it's almost laughable now, looking back at the, at the oh, shit that I thought I was getting away with. I, I wake up and I have this cough from dry mouth, and that's what's making me dry heave because I have a sensitive gag reflux or reflex, which is absolute garbage. And then I would know that every certain number of hours I would need to drink or I couldn't type the password into my computer because my hands were shaking. I knew my eyes were yellow, so I started avoiding, and this is how twisted the disease is, my eyes were yellow and I avoided the mirror. Right, because that'll make it go away. I didn't st I didn't stop drinking. I didn't go see a doctor. I didn't even, I didn't have the courage, or I don't know what it was, your brain will lie to you. I just, I'm gonna avoid the mirror. I didn't wanna see what, I didn't wanna see what would look back Right, and for me, if I can avoid it, right, and numb it out, then it doesn't exist, right? At least exactly. that it does exist, but I could convince myself otherwise, and the damage would just right. pile until you up. could get. It. And then once you got enough of the alcohol in you, you didn't care. So I was also depressed. I so, and this is where so I'm isolated. I'm drinking. I have no accountability to anybody or myself. Uh, I'm only I'm only showing accountability to the bottle. I didn't realize I was depressed, and I tell everybody isolation is is an addict's. And and yes, people, regardless of of whether you're into the drugs or alcohol, it's the same, it works in the same way in the brain. Um, it has the same effect on neurotransmitters and everything else and, and how the disease progresses. Isolation is an addict's worst enemy, absolute worst enemy. You need people, you, you need a network, you need people that can help you, especially when you're battling that battle. And I, I ended up depressed uh, and I didn't know I was depressed. I knew I had anxiety. I didn't know I was depressed. I mean, I had a nice house. I had, you know, the bills were being paid. I had food when I needed it, whatever the case may have you. My best friend found out that my family was going to do an intervention and send me to rehab. But he knows that my family, good intentions, they would have had a bad delivery. Uh, very negative. It would have been very hurtful. Right. Shame on you. What have you done? You need to go do this. Yeah. You're a piece of, yeah, you're a piece of garbage, whatever. You need this or sending you ultimatum style. So my best friend couldn't get a flight. He lives in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm up here in Connecticut. He got in his truck and he drove overnight, straight through the night to make sure he was here. This is a different best friend He uh, from the academy. He walked in the door before anybody else. And I got up off the couch and I went and I hugged him. And my legs just gave out. And I started crying uncontrollably, like sobbing, just sobbing uncontrollably. That's when it dawned on me I was depressed and I had like I was there was nothing left of me as, as, as a human being. It's almost like we become shells of what we once were. That's exactly what it was. And, and so now to this point, I'll tell you, I went from at 19 years old, I'm in the academy, I'm academically stimulated, I'm physically stimulated, I'm going, you know, I'm running all the time, I'm working out. 
I'm very involved in my church. I know religion is not for everybody, but for some people it is, and, and for me it is. So I'm religiously involved. I had tons of friends. I'm involved in the community. I do charity work. Um, I'm spiritually connected to like Mother Nature and being outside and all these other things. You know, there's there's so many aspects to us that makes us that creates an individual culture. You know, we each have our own individual culture. Culture doesn't have to be like, uh, you know, an ethnic thing where it's, you know, it's the Mexican culture, it's the Latin culture, it's the Japanese culture, Asian, whatever you want. Every single human being has an individual culture. And that's what makes human beings beautiful. That's what makes each and every one of us so beautiful. And here I have my culture as a 19-year-old man. I had like no voids in my culture. Everything was was really firing on all cylinders, so to speak. And as alcohol came more and more into my life. Here's 19 years old. The scale is is way up. And when alcohol started increasing in use, I started to stop different aspects. I was drinking, but I was still doing an Ironman, but I hadn't been to church in three years. I was no longer in school. I used to read three books a week. I hadn't read a book in like a year. And then the physical... The physical left. And the only thing I had left were the friends that would come over and have bonfires and, you know, and whatever. Because I had a very fun and relaxing demeanor at my house. Nobody got judged. And we would do random goofy stuff all the time, um, which is great. That's awesome. But slowly that tribe that I, I talked about, like, that you can have a tribe and not be in the military. That tribe I had just diminished over time. And that's when the alcohol and the alcohol just got more and more and more. And like I said, to the very end, right before I went to rehab, when that my best friend walked through that door, the alcohol was all I had left. I was a complete shell of a human being. I was a shell of the the man I used to be. So I really like to use the shell because that's actually how I I see it and and what I usually use too is as a a metaphor for it. I went to rehab. Uh, I was full jaundice. They thought I had liver failure or at least permanent liver damage. I took 12 days to medically detox before it was even safe to move me downstairs. I wanted to go back to work because, again, performance anxiety. Got to go back to work. Got to work. Got to work. That's the most important thing. I still hadn't caught on. I went through rehab. By the time I finished, I fully recognized him and I was an alcoholic. But I thought when I left that place, I was an alcoholic who had control over it. I'm just going to beat it. I Piece of cake. No problem. Yeah, I'll go to meetings if I have to, if I'm feeling like it. But... I don't really need to because I can just beat I've this I've been there. Thing, right? Take some of the suggestions, right? But I, I know what I'm doing. I heard everything, right? Or spent 28 days. I got all the, the little cheesy sayings. I know what to do. I read the book. I got this. I didn't have it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I came back. I got laid off. It was pretty much because I was gone for a month. Uh, I wasn't in the – it was a small company and they, you know, it, it – it hurt them to be down a person, to be paying a person that wasn't there for a month. It's not really legal, but it was done, or at least I don't think it is. I don't know. It was done It was done well. And they, they were very, very respectful and very kind to me on the way out. They offered me all sorts of reference letters, they, you know, things like that. People kept in touch with me. Um, I, still, I still hold a lot of those people in a very fond place in my heart. And when I got laid off, I had a bachelor's party the next morning. Yep. How'd that go? In my mind, I have control over it. I am an alcoholic, but I, I have control. And that is that is your brain lying to you. because in, And that's why they say the first year, you're so vulnerable. <laughs> so now I'm like, well, I got laid off, which is huge 
for the performance anxiety aspect, again, it's just another kick right to the old coyotes when it comes to the to that. And I got a bachelor's party the next day, so why not? You know what? I'm in the because I'm in the, the I'm one of the groomsmen, and we're going golfing, and I'm like, oh, I always you know I've always for 19 years now I've been drinking and golfing. They go hand in hand. So I'll have some drinks at the golf course and, and throughout the weekend because why not? I got laid off. And then Sunday when I go to church, I will, uh, I'll go ahead and reset my clock, my sober clock. And, and it's that simple, oh, of right? Course. I mean, in my, in my mind, it was a logical and rational decision. I had one shot on the first tee with everybody else and all the other groomsmen, the best men, the, the groom. I didn't make the 14th hole. Bro. So embarrassing. Totally identify, at least for me. And again, see, alcohol wasn't a huge thing for me. Even when I was at my worst, uh, I was pretty much a garbage head, right? Anything you could throw at me, I would do. Uh, but alcohol wasn't one of them. But still, I can identify with what you're saying because the one thing that I have control over is choosing whether or not I take that first drug or drink or whatever. After that first one, I'm, I'm, my control is gone and, and the fucking monster takes over. Gone. It is literally, you have stepped off a cliff into an abyss and there's nothing to hold on to. So that happened. I fell asleep in the car. I woke up, you know, because I couldn't drive. So I slept until I could drive. By Sunday morning, I had the shakes. I couldn't go to church because I was already shaking. It's amazing oh, how yeah. fast. That's why relapses are so dangerous. I was already shaking within 48 you hours. You definitely pick up. They always said that, oh, you'll just pick up where you left off. And, no, 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 no. I got this. You have no idea how many. I've been trying to get this right for 15, 20 years. And I'd always, within a week, right back to where I started. It's scary. It's incredible, but that's why it's also so medically damaging. So I went back to rehab Sunday. Good um, on you. That that's that's a brave thing to do. No, it wasn't. It was it wasn't all right. me. That's all so right. all right, Caveat. here's a little. I'm gonna put a disclaimer. If you have any sort of sensitivity on this, you know, plug your ears for a second. But I go to a. I, I don't have a stash anymore because I hadn't been drinking in, in 60 days. So I I can't get booze. It's Connecticut. Everything closed at five. So I go to a bar. Of course. Right? You're going to find a way. You will find a way. And I go to the bar and I, I have a couple martinis, which normally wouldn't have been a big deal, but I'm floored because of it. The bar, ma- the bar manager takes my keys. Thank God for her. And she calls the cops because I'm like, no, 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 I'm good. And she calls the cops. Cops like, hey, man, if you leave them, I'm going to be sitting in the parking lot. I'm going to arrest you. And thank God for him. I mean, these people were amazing. These, these people were – to have them there at that time in my life was huge. So I call my wife. It's 1130 at night and I have an 18 month old at home. Yeah. And he's obviously in his crib and she's like, I'm not, I'm not waking our 18 month old up to come get you. What the hell's wrong with you? So she calls my father. I didn't know that at the time. And that's another thing. Like since I was 16, I wanted to be a dad and here I am a father and I'm barely present as a carbon based life form. Right. And I really had to wake up to that fact. So the, the disclaimer part is because the bar manager called me an Uber. She's like, your Uber's here. And I go out there and I get in the car and this guy may as well look like you. Like like somehow even whiter than you. Jesus. He's got blonde hair, I think. You don't get much whiter than me. Right? Abercrombie Fitch looking for anybody who's too young that used to be a store. Oh, God. We're um, so old. <laughs> I know, right? He's, he's this blonde haired, like blue eyed young dude, kind of. And, and it's just probably lived in town and it's a small town of like 7,000 people. And he's like, all right, man, where are you going? And I was like, I looked at him. I go, you can't take me home. And he goes, why not? And I said, because you're a freaking terrorist. Oh, my God. I, what the what hell? What does that even mean? Like, what? I don't know. Like, <laughs> like, 
<laughs> to this day, I have no explanation for that. None. And I'm like, he goes, what? I go, you're a terrorist. You're not taking me home. That was my alcoholic brain saying you're staying at the bar to drink more. Right. And he's like, okay, dude. And he was like, I, I guess I'll see you. You sure? And I was like, yeah. And so I go back in the bar and the cops talk to the bar manager. The two of them looked at me and they were like, we just put you in a car. What are you doing? Like it was an underwear bomber. I'm not going with him. And I looked at the cop and the bar manager and I said, I can't go home with him. And they said, why not? I go, because he's a terrorist. And the two of them looked at each other and they looked at me and they're like, holy cow, this guy is freaking batshit crazy. And then like 20 minutes after that, I get a tap on my shoulder and I'm like, oh, great. Who now? And I look over my shoulder. It's my father. And I just went, mm -hmm. oh, shit. So he takes me back and this is where, you know, my friend coming up from Florida was so important. Instead of taking me straight back to rehab, he takes me to my parents' house, which is out of the way, at like one o'clock in the morning so that my mother can scream at me for a solid 35 minutes and telling me what a huge piece of shit I am. That always helps. I should, my, I, my wife should divorce me. I don't deserve to have my kid. I'm a big piece of shit. I mean, the reason I share this part is because... I've got into the recovery business, so to speak, and I, it's, to me, it's not a business, but I'm saying it like that just for a right. sentence. Anyone who ever is in a relapse, who is in my network, be it work network or otherwise, if you needed somebody to talk to, I, would, I will never, ever, ever kick you while you are down. Hell yeah. Ever. It will not happen. I will support you. I will get you help. You have to be able to take the suggestion. But I will never, ever kick you while you're down and humiliate or disrespect you. That is, I know what it feels like and it hurts. And people don't go to recovery after a relapse because there's a massive amount of shame and guilt. And people who don't under, who aren't in recovery or who have never been through it, they don't understand. Right. They do what they do out of caring. But like you said, they don't understand. They don't get what they're no, doing. There's, 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 some, of them, some of them may have sympathy. But no one will ever have the empathy that somebody who's been through it does. Absolutely. So I end up going, and this time I realize, okay, this is for real. There's no one. There's no one. This, this is, I started reading more while I was in there. I read a ton of stuff on it. By the time I got towards the end of uh, this particular rehab session, I had counselors actually having me lead groups, rehab groups. I got out of there and... I immediately started, I signed up for recovery coach professional courses through CCAR, which is a, a recovery program up here in Connecticut that's now spreading through a bunch of states. Um, <clears throat> I started reading articles. I, I got, uh, I signed up for an online thing. I get PDS emailed to me every morning about neuroscience and addiction, uh, recovery hobbies, um, group activities you could do with reco for recovery. Um, and I, I just, all the effort and energy that I put into work previous to that, you know, always having to, always having to perform because I was always afraid I was never good enough. That same thing from childhood. I was always afraid I was coming up short or I was failing somebody. I was now pouring that effort into recovering. A big part of it was, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. Okay. Yeah, I can't drink. There were certain things I was told that I understood, but why? Right. In order for me to really bite off and be successful on this journey, I needed to know why. Because in understanding the workings of something, you can better break it down and you can better work with it. I went to meetings. Uh, I got really involved in my church. I started to change my lifestyle. 
And I worked towards getting hired into the recovery center that I actually went to. I got hired as a regional alumni coordinator. I was already a recovery coach professional, but I did not take on any clients, even though I could have, because I felt if I was going to take on clients, I owed them more than just what I had been through. I needed to learn more. I needed to offer something more. I worked for almost a full year before I even started pursuing other things. I kept going to meetings. Uh, I facilitate and share the retreat fellowship, which is alumni fellowship, Tuesday and Thursday night meetings. I facilitate and share a speaker meeting for alumni who have six months of sobriety. Uh, I go to AA uh, in Danbury and Brookfield, Connecticut. I'm a huge part of my church. I did go to a th- uh, Two more therapists uh, that, that are not throwing Xanax at your head like TikToks. That, that neither one of them ever even brought up a prescription. Hell yeah. Never even brought up a prescription. And then, and not only that, one of them recommended another therapist uh, who specialized working with veterans. They were like, hey, you know what? This may be a good person just to talk to in case you're not getting enough awesome. from me. And that's another thing, like you said, when it comes to like a sponsor or a therapist or anything like that, a really good sponsor, a really good therapist, not everyone connects with each other. Absolutely. You know what I mean? It's just human nature. And so a really good one who's professional, if you don't connect with them and you say, hey, look, you know, I really appreciate your time. This this just doesn't feel right for me. Not only should the therapist or sponsor say, I understand, here are some other sponsors and or therapists who have a different method than me, who have a different personality than me, that may work for you, that's the response you should get. I'm not saying you will. It's what you should get. And if you don't get that response, then they weren't good enough to begin with. Right. And self-advocating for yourself is very, very important, right? If something's not going right, you got to stand up for yourself, right? And again, it goes back to- Otherwise, you're going to put yourself in a negative spiral. Right. It just goes back to that everyone here is worth everything that they can get. Right. Everyone here is worth living this sober life and living it in a fun way. I mean, we have a lot of fun, man. You're an idiot. I'm an idiot. We have a ton of fun. We have a ton of fun. Remember how I just, you know, I just said there was this scale where I went from this this man at 19 I could be proud of who had no voids, or at least if there were voids, they were tiny and they were being worked on, actively worked on, to bigger, 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 bigger voids, more and more and more alcohol. Now I'm going the other way. Right. We gave up everything for one thing in our addiction. Now we're giving up one thing for everything. Yeah. And this time it doesn't work where, no, you're drinking less and less and less and less in order to increase the other side. It's your invest. You need more and more and more time. You can't drink at all or use whatever your substance of choice is at all because the neurotransmitters, everybody has, I believe, nine neurotransmitters. No, I do not have a degree in this, blah, blah, blah. But like you said, we're just talking. I believe there is, from some of my readings, there is nine neurotransmitters. They work with the VTA and frontal lobe portion of your brain. And the idea is it regulates emotion and logic. So stuff feels good that's supposed to feel good for for the survival and betterment of you. And the, and the human species. Right. You know, the easiest way, the easiest analogy for that is sex. You release a ton of neurotransmitters on the positive side of things because you're making the species continue. Like it's, it's an evolutionary thing. Something uh, like working out. Why does getting stronger feel better over time? Because that means you're better fit for survival, for getting, you know, being able to build a better shelter, hunt down a better prey, whatever the case may have you. The, there's, this stuff is really ingrained. If you read a lot of books on it, it it's very impressive to look at. Uh, that being said, there's five things that I try to do self-reflection on, five questions I continually ask myself that I learned about in this process 
um, which I, I encourage people to give it a shot. Score yourself on a zero to five, zero being the lowest, five being the highest. Uh, and the five questions are, are really, really kind of simple. How connected are you on a day-to-day, week-to-week-ish? Because obviously you're not going to be able to do everything every single day. But day-to-day, week-to-week aspect of your life. How connected are you in nature? Do you have value and purpose in your job? And value has nothing to do with money. You and I already talked about this. Am I one of those people who's delusional and thinks, oh, money's not important? No, money's important. Pay your bills. Pay your bills. Put food on your table. Eat something. Have a roof over your head. I got it. But don't let it consume you. Right. More money does not make you more of a human being. Value is, do you feel value? Are you adding value to others' lives? Are you adding value to something? Do you have a purpose in what you're doing? Do you feel driven and you have a purpose in what you're doing? Now, the same can be said for number three, which is value and purpose in your home life. The reason they're separated is because of the amount of time you spend at work, your awake time you spend working. Four is develop a happy and healthy tribe. Like we talked about earlier, people you can be around. They're not going to judge you. You could either have a great conversation where everybody talks the whole time and you got laughs or you could just sit around each other quiet. If they do tell you something that's a little bit, you know, hurtful, it's because it's in your best interest, not because they're trying to pull you down. If something good happens to your life, they're not being judgmental or jealous. They're genuinely happy for you. And I'll tell, I tell people this all the time. Your tribe does not necessarily have to be your family. You know, there are family members out there who just aren't those people. And then the last one is physical activity. Physical activity is not physical fitness. Physical activity is just moving around. It releases endorphins. It releases dopamine. It releases serotonin. These are all things, all five of these things, if you utilize them in your day-to-day, week-to-week life, you start to help your body get back to homeostasis with those neurotransmitters. The reason that first year is so vulnerable is because you spent so long using substances that bombarded the positive side of your center in an unnatural way. Your normal is stuck on the positive. You don't have a normal centering. Right. And that's a lot of what causes withdrawals, right? Because you're not making a lot of these chemicals because you're putting too much in. It it causes relapse. And what's interesting, now you have a great day. Everything goes right. Everything goes right. Had a great breakfast, woke up on plenty of sleep, blah, blah, blah. Everything goes right. Right. Why don't I feel good? Well, I know it'll make me feel good, my substance. Mm-hmm. Now, what's make now add to that, people think, oh, that 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 makes you relapse. What if everything goes wrong? Yeah. It feels even worse than it normally would because you already started out feeling bad. Now, how can I get rid of this? How can I get away from this? You cope by using. That's why your network is so important. That tribe is so important. Just get around people who will pick you up, who will support you, who at the very least will get you back to some semblance of normal or or middle ground center so that you're not being driven by your substance to make, to, to hide from what you're feeling or to not, or, or to overcome it. It's not a healthy coping mechanism. But if you fall into what I call the negative cone of, of emotion, whereas shame, guilt, anger, grief, any of those, any sort of negative emotion, the longer you stay over on that side, it'll lead to anxiety and depression, which will lead to isolation because you won't even realize you're pushing people away. And don't do that. Allow somebody to give you that helping hand to pull you back from that side of things, to pull you out of that cone. And it's amazing to have that tribe, right? Because even if you don't reach out to them, they'll reach out to you. Right. Because you've shown yourself, right. You show up places, you make phone calls, you text people. Then all of a sudden I'm a chronic isolator. I just pull away from the world, but my network will pull me back in. Where are you? I didn't hear from you today. How come I didn't get some stupid meme? Where's the inappropriate joke? Ken, how come you're not calling me an asshole face? Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But it's the truth. And it's, it's nice because I could be having a terrible 
fucking day, right? We, I had somebody I know just passed away a couple days ago. And as soon as I, I said something about it, you know, you were, you were one of the people that, that reached out. Thank you very much for it. And a whole bunch of other people too. And not just that day, they continued to check in with me, you know, throughout, and not in a weird way, not in an overbearing way where it was like, what are you doing? You know, make sure you don't fuck up. It's just, Hey buddy, how, how you doing? Just, you know, thinking of you, love you. You know, you're not looking for a warden. You're not looking for a parental figure. That's it's, 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 degrading it's a masculine right it's it's that's not what you're looking for you're looking for support not dictation and it will come you're looking for you're looking for teammates not like i said not a warden it's 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 a different type of support and it's a healthy network to be around again things i try to focus on is those five questions and if i find my and i'll tell you right now i've never hit all fives almost two and a half years i've never hit all i still haven't hit all fives and i, and I tell people take your time with your tribe meeting new friends as an adult is not easy especially not at all. when you don't go to places like bars but be patient another thing I, I tell people in recovery that i've really learned is you gotta be patient addicts are notorious we are notorious we want instant gratification we love to feel good and feel good right now if we want something we want it now asap be patient take on a healthy hobby this is where the ducks come in i want to check found out ducks were easier got ducks ended up getting multiple breeds and over and it was just something if i if i started to think about negative emotions it doesn't even have to be about alcohol if you catch yourself thinking about negative emotions go spend 10 or 15 if i have a hobby you can spend 10 or 15 minutes on because even if you're only spending 10 or 15 minutes you're accomplishing something. You're accomplishing 15 minutes of work and that's an investment. What's that an investment into? Those accomplishments end up building up over time and they actually build up a sense of pride. Hell yeah. And you're going to realize when, when it comes around, you won't realize it for a while. You really won't. For me, it was around 16 months. They say one to two years is when your brain starts to heal from a, a center point, from that homeostasis point. But you got to do stuff to get there. It's the same scale metaphor. The beginning, it's, it's, it's all work. I usually say five days a week have something so sobriety focused or in your life. And that means a meeting or, or something to that aspect, the therapy session, an hour in, in your religious sect of whatever, you know, church, synagogue, such forth, temple. Um, two things for self-care. Self-care is huge. No one, no one takes care of themselves anymore. Oh, I got to do others first or I got to do this first or I got these responsibilities. Stop. You can take two hours in a week. Are you kidding me? Anybody can do that. And you're talking for what I just said is seven hours total, five and two. That's one hour a day for seven days. If you can't figure that out, come on. You're lying to yourself. You spent how much how much of that time in a stupor from your use? Right. Probably just running around trying to figure out how to get it. Got not even the stupor. How much money did you waste on your substance? Oh, I have an app that tells me. It, it adds it up. It's you insane. know how much a duck costs? How much is Six it? bucks. Really? It's $6 to get a duck. That's amazing. I bought a few ducks. I, I You build a, a shed. You look up stuff on the internet. And this goes back to cultivating life. It's even better. Get a garden. If you live in the city, do window herbs. Your house will smell amazing. And I'm talking about thyme and rosemary and oregano, not the other ones. <laughs> no mushrooms under the bed, people. Right? You know? And, and a, a friend, Ken, a mutual friend of ours, he, he took up mushroom foraging. And he's fucking awesome at it. And he's phenomenal. And he, now he knows all about like, he, you, he, he can grab a leaf, chew it up and use it as antiseptic. Like, and that was his hobby. And you, and you lose yourself in these things. Become a slightly better version of yourself every day. If you do that, you never have a best day for the rest of your life. You never have a best version of yourself because 
The problem I have with, with some people, oh, live your best life. The problem I have with that is if you live your best life, if, if, if you are the best version of yourself, then after that, you're just going downhill. Absolutely. If you become a better version of yourself, just a slightly better version of yourself than you were the day before, every day for the rest of your life, you never, you never stop. You never stop growing. You never stop progressing. That's pretty fucking good, Gordy. And it's, it doesn't have to be, I found a new species of something. I cured cancer. It's, it's literally, you know what? I saw a billboard about this topic. It seemed interesting. I don't know anything about it. Let me just read an article, a one page article. That's 10 minutes, not even. Who knows? Maybe it sparks a new interest and you read a book next or something or a short story. Or maybe you want to try cooking Indian food and you never have, you know? So what if you burn the first one? You know what? And that's another thing. Don't be afraid to fail. Failure is, is the greatest lesson in life. It means you're, even if you try something new and you fail, guess what? You're a better version of yourself. You grew. That could literally be something as simple as trying a new food that you didn't even cook. You didn't like the way it tasted. So what? You learned something. It can literally be that simple. Then what happens is over time, these are little investments. It's like putting that 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 penny in the piggy bank, the dollar in, in an investment fund. Yeah, sure. When I relapsed, it was it was what? It was 60 days? That was like spending five bucks. The desire to use again was in one hand and I had $5 in the other. The desire to use was cheap at that point. $5 was nothing. It was very easy to give up that sobriety. Right. And that's, again, why I should have called someone. All I had to do was call someone. And I didn't do that. I spent the five bucks. Bye-bye, 60-day sobriety. Almost ruined my life. For what? And But if you continue to put in these these small investments these and continue to achieve these little accomplishments and continue to become a better version of yourself and start to fill every void you may have start to to be physically active start to get spiritually connected to something if you're not religious religiously connected if you are religious find something on that aspect start to read start to maybe if you don't like to read start to listen to a podcast start to start to just stimulate your mind somehow watch discovery channel or or survival show. I don't know. Whatever you're into. The Food Network. The, start going places you haven't been. Try things that you haven't done. Meet new people. Grow your tribe. And fill in the social void. Go see your doctor. Be proactive with your health. Not reactive. That's something I've started to do. It It's scary as all hell. Especially for men for some reason. I'm telling you right now. It feels phenomenal. Fill those voids. Make healthy connections. Make bonds with people. Make bonds with, with networks. And... You're going to find that the more bonds and connections you make and the less voids you have in your individual culture and your life, the less that substance has any control over you. And while you're doing it, have fun. That's the most important part. Because these things that you're going after should be fun to go after. When you go to bed, go to bed humble and grateful for even the smallest of victories, the smallest of accomplishments that you had that day. Hell yeah. You'll sleep better. Wake up the next morning and don't just get through your day like so many of us do in recovery or not. Oh, let me just get through my day. Let me just get through to the five o'clock. Let me just get through to Friday. We have so many of us get through to stuff. No, stop surviving your day. Stop getting through it. Live it. In the beginning, maybe your job doesn't have value and purpose, but maybe you have a hobby after work that you're looking forward to. Then you're living your life for that hobby until you can change that job. 
Get involved with the community. You're living to get to do something for that community. Live your life. Attack your day. Become a warrior, a happy, positive warrior in your recovery because it is a battle. And you will do amazing things. The, the things you're able to do in recovery will blow your mind. I am no longer the person I was at 19. Am I ever going to be that man I was at 19 who I was proud of and could be proud of? No. But I can damn well be a whole and proud man of who I have the potential to become now. Hell yeah. I want to be a proud father. I want to be proud of the work I'm doing with people. I want to be a proud person of my community. I want to be proud because I have value and purpose in the things I'm doing, regardless of what it is. And if I fail, so what? I learned. As long as it means I'm getting better. And that's part of the humility of it. If I screw up, I, I ask for forgiveness because I'm not perfect. And that's okay. You know, and, and it's okay. Everybody's different. So find different things for you. In your recovery, your recovery program, and this goes true for Ken and I, just as, as an example of two people, his is different than mine. 100%. Ours is both different from this forager, the mushroom forager. And it's because, like I said, we all have our individual cultures and that's beautiful and that's an amazing thing. Be proud of your culture. Be proud of who you are. Don't judge others for theirs because it's different, but still be proud of yours. But understand that the therapist that works for Ken doesn't work for me. And that's just an example. The AA meeting maybe doesn't work for him. His NA meeting doesn't work for me. Maybe my AA meeting works for him and his NA meeting works for me. We don't know. Don't be afraid to try new things. If it, Give it one or two shots. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, move on. Be flexible, but build your own program that is successful for you. It is your recovery program that you have to build for you. Each one of us is building a puzzle and we need certain pieces that fit in a certain way to create a picture. And that picture is your success. Ken's puzzle pieces do not fit my puzzle. Mine don't fit his. Maybe we do have a few that are the same, but all of them, not a chance. But we can support each other even with the differences. Absolutely. That was that was some heavy shit, Gordon. You know, this is why I wanted to talk to you. This is fucking great. And the most important part about everything you just said, for anyone that's that's just given this recovery thing a shot, right? Even if you've given it a shot in the past and, and you're back and we're so happy you are, it doesn't, like Gordy said, it doesn't have to happen right away, right? It's you just, all you can do is do your best. And if you can honestly say to yourself that you are giving this way of life and walking this path, everything you have, then you're doing fucking great, right? Even if you can't check off all those five boxes in a day. Right. And never, ever give up. Hell yeah. So so I've, I've added the church. I've added much more time with my family. I try to get out in nature more. Value and purpose. I don't chase a dollar anymore. I, I do pay bills. I, that's why I have a job. But I'm doing something I find value and purpose in. On top of it, um, as you know, uh, I started my own fellowship. I, I found that there were certain things I wasn't getting in, in my puzzle pieces. My puzzle wasn't whole. And I needed deeper discussions. So my my fellowship is the Sober Think Tank. Any cost that goes into it, is, I pay for. I, I applied to the Patent and Trademark Office seven months ago to trademark the Sober Think Tank to me. Selfreflectionandrecovery.com, without any hyphens or, or capitals, is my website uh, that I'm currently building. I've never built a website, so... Be very patient with it. It's a good website. It is a work in progress, but it's one. But it's one of those things, you know. Instead of being afraid and saying I can't do it, I just gave it a shot. Oh, yeah. And the first weekend I started working on it, I caused a critical error that shut it down for a week, and I needed some serious professional help. 
Uh, but that, that's okay. I learned not to do that. Still working on that. I have two meetings a week now, Wednesday and Sunday. And one of the things I found in recovery is there's a large there's a large understanding gap between people in recovery and people not in recovery. And remember before we talked about how there are certain people, uh, if you do relapse or who are a part of your recovery journey, who are genuinely sympathetic, not out of pity. They are, they care about you and they're genuinely sympathetic. And those are great people to hold on to. Right. Of course. But they lack the empathy because they can't understand. Well, I'm trying to bridge that gap as opposed to like there's AA and then there's Al-Anon. But there's still this this chasm, this huge chasm in between the two where there's just so much misunderstanding. So my Wednesday night meeting is a hybrid that I literally only started like a month ago. Um, and the idea is people who aren't in recovery but have someone that they care about that is, they can come to what is just like my Sunday night meeting, which is topic driven. The only difference from the other fellowships like AA and NA and some of those is you could be religious. You don't have to be religious. There's no, there's nothing that drives it from that perspective. Everything is welcome. Everybody's individuality is welcome because everybody that comes to the meeting can learn from everybody else. That's the premise that we, we are there to learn from each other so all of us can grow and progress by reflecting on each of our own individual experiences. And we take the topic, we see how it it affected our lives to that point, and then potentially how could we change and grow in the future using that topic more or less in our life. While I do the same type of thing on Wednesday, the only difference is there's pe- we get the perspective of people who aren't in recovery. And not only that, they get our perspective, they can see what we're doing when we do go to these meetings. Right. Because a lot of them, they, they don't go to, people don't go to meetings. Right. They think it's like a cult. People don't go just seeking like group help. It, it's a version of group help. A lot of fellowships are a version of, of group help. It's, it's an interesting thing and it creates a new network. And then who knows, maybe down the road one day, yeah, I do hope to create like my own outpatient thing. Yeah, I really do. This is where we talk about the having fun and enjoying it and, and living it every day. I want my, my place would be a place where people actually enjoy going to work. And not just because they have value and purpose in helping out the clients, but because the culture that I would create would be the culture that that I have definitely been missing in a lot of the places I have worked. So maybe getting laid off and having so many jobs like I did and seeing so many negatives from different types of – we're talking government service. We're talking military, paramilitary. Fortune 500 company, finance, operations, all different kinds of jobs, and even recovery. I have seen some very negative cultures. And so, yeah, I, first I'm creating a fellowship that doesn't replace AA for me, but it, it complements it. And and maybe one day I can grow a workplace, God willing, where the culture amongst the people working there and the culture of the workplace itself is not only positive in recovery and has value and purpose, but what we're doing just doubles that by having value and purpose by helping others. I say it now, and that will not change, regardless of how much time in sobriety, we are in this together. We're all on the same ship. We're just in different seats on the same voyage. And you never know when you could go from your seat back to a different seat or move up to a different seat based on what's going on in your life. That is one of the scary things is the unknown of where this disease could take you. But knowing that you're not facing that unknown alone should definitely give you strength and courage. You know, with these sober think tank meetings, right, all the official links will be found in the show notes and the links to the Zoom meetings because for the Wednesday and the Sunday meetings, right, you can also log in with Zoom. And one of my favorite parts about this fellowship is that you don't have to be spiritual, right? Like a lot of people shy away from things like AA and NA and some of the, the more established fellowships because of, you know, they're scared of the G word, right? They're scared of God and they don't, or they're just not ready, or maybe it's just not for them, right? Maybe they're atheist or agnostic or whatever, and that's cool, right? 
You don't have to be spiritual to recover. But at these meetings, right, there is nothing like that. But at the same time, it does not look down on anyone that is religious. It's just good people walking this path together. People who have taken part definitely do share, hey, you know, God was a part of my recovery. Right. But it's not pushed on and that's, and that's fine. And But people will also say that, you know, God is not. I don't believe in that. And that's fine as well. Um, like I said before, each program should be as unique as each individual. If it's working for you, I 100% will support it. Hell yeah. 100%. And that, and like you said, the Sober Think Tank Fellowship, anything that's working for you in recovery will not be judged. Basically, the only rule, I, I mean, we have a good time. We make jokes. You know, we kind of josh each other a little bit. That's fine. Don't, you can't be too overly sensitive. The only real, I guess, unwritten rule essentially is you're not allowed to disrespect or have malicious intent towards anyone else in the meeting. That's it. You can honestly share how you truly feel or what you truly feel works with you or what you're going through or what experiences you have in recovery or even prior to that. If if, if your higher power, God, Muhammad, whatever is, is in there, Okay, that works for you. That's fine. If you don't have, if it's Mother Nature, that's fine. If it's Buddha, that's fine. If it's nothing, that's fine. I don't care. Right, as long as it's working. Don't disrespect or be malicious towards anybody else. Whatever works for you, 100% behind you. 100%. If it keeps you healthy and happy and living that life and attacking that life and succeeding in sobriety, I am behind you and I will fight for you day in and day out, period. Gordy, honestly, once anybody shows up, I showed up to one and like Gordy said, you know, everyone's uh, recovery is different, right? The pieces to the puzzle. The Sober Think Tank is a huge piece to my puzzle and I love those fucking meetings and I try never to, I haven't missed one yet since I found out about it uh, and I try to go in person when I can, uh, but hopefully we'll see some more people in there and this was a ton of fun, man. I think this was a great uh, first episode. Thank you so much uh, for having this conversation with me. No, thank, thank you. I really appreciate it and you know, I really appreciate the things you're saying about that meeting. Yeah, no, it's a great meeting. And Gordy always brings good food. It wouldn't exist without everybody that goes. It just, it just wouldn't. It, 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 yeah, okay. So I, I, I created a website and I, I put a time and place down. But if I went alone, I'd be sitting in an empty room. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's what everybody brings to the table. It's the fact that we are in that boat together. We have fun together. And, and we stand next to each other in this battle that, that, that we, that we go through. We're going to keep winning, man. And, and anybody that joins us and wants to be a part of it, we're going to help you win as well. And if anybody falls down, guess what? We're the ones that are going to pick you back up and we're, and we're going to do it and dust you off the whole way. Positive forward progression and growth and have fun, man. Like Ken said, it was on the internet, so it has to be true. Um, oh yeah, one hundred percent. You I, know, I'm Al pretty, Gore actually invented the internet. Well, did you know, you know he did. Oh, see, he I, did. I really, I thought it was out oh. before him because I thought Abe Lincoln posted this. But oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> there was there was a quote really fast. It says it's from Nietzsche. Maybe, maybe. maybe. You knows? know, again, this could have came from Abe Lincoln, but it says Frederick Nietzsche posted this. I both um, in every real man. And no, that does not mean man or woman. It's in every real person, a child is hidden that wants to play. 100%. So many middle-aged adults stop playing. You want to watch a good movie that shows that you should keep playing as an adult? Watch Tag. No, they didn't pay me to say that shit. I can't stand any of that stuff. But I'll tell you right now, you will laugh your ass off watching Tag. You'll probably watch it five times. And you might cry too. But it is a cool movie that shows adults. And it's based on a true story. Is it? It is. It's 
There was a group of adults. They showed the newspaper newspaper article at the end that, that was the reason for the movie. It right. was a group of adults. There were like 15 of them or something. They all grew up together playing tag. Hence the name of the movie, Tag. Right. They, they moved away for jobs and families and whatever. But once a year, the tag game would resume. You could only be tagged during that month. So That's like awesome. May or something. During May, you could be tagged. And whoever was it at the end of May last year is the first person it the next year. These guys would fly to where other guys were, dress up in costume to sneak up on their friends and tag them. That's awesome. And, and We should do this. Right? I, I, you almost want to start the tag game with your buddies. How'd you build a network? Oh, I yeah. just started a game of tag. In the middle of the yeah, world. I just slap my friends in the back of the head whenever I get a chance. Once a year. I, and you know, you're, you're absolutely right about every adult having a child in them that wants to play. I got a six-foot potato cannon out in my sunroom, and I guarantee you I give that to any adult with a bottle of Aquanet hairspray. They're playing. Right. I've never seen anyone walk away from it. It's the truth. And there's no reason we can't have fun. No. Right. Well, why go through all this work of leaving, uh, you know, this one way of life behind and really learning how to live again and learning who I am again. Right. Or you had to learn who you were all over again. Right. If we're just going to be fucking miserable. What, what, what's the point? And I got a long way to go. And I, you know what? Because, well, God willing, I have a long way to go because, you know, who knows what can happen with your health. But, you know, if it is a long way to go, why not make the trip fun? Hell yeah. I think that's a great note uh, for us to end, my friend. Again, uh, let's make the trip fun. This was amazing. Gordy, thank you so much for taking time. Remember, everyone, all the official links for the Sober Think Tank can be found in the show notes, selfreflectioninrecovery.com. Check it out. Be there. And I, I guess, you know, real quick, what's what's one last thing you'd like to say to, to anyone out there that that's struggling right now, that's listening to this, that wants to get sober, that wants to get clean, but they're on the edge and they just need to hear that one more right thing to get them to get the help that they need? Make the call. Please, I beg you, don't wait for someone to have to make it for you. No matter how hard it might seem right now, no matter what emotions you're battling that's keeping you from doing it, it's it's not an embarrassing call to make, which I hear a lot. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It doesn't make you less of a person. Ignore any stigma that might be in the back of your brain. Making that call will make you the most courageous and amazing person that people like Ken and I and so many millions, millions of others will be proud of, and you will be proud of it too, once you realize what you did. Make that call, get that help. Hell yeah. Thank you, Gordy. This has been the Recovery Radio Show. My name's Ken. Thank you again so much, Gordy. Thank you, Ken. I'm worth it, you're worth it, and everyone out there listening, you're worth it as well. We'll see you next time. 